look at the federal government's budget, years ago, 30% of it was on entitlements. Now, something like 70% of it is on entitlements. So there's been a major switch away from things like infrastructure and basic science that would promote economic growth. And the three big ones in terms of dollars are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Why is that happening? Well, the political bias toward the present. But that switch has, has had an adverse effect on economic growth because in infrastructure and basic science promote economic growth. Those are kind of government investments, and that's being abandoned. And these others are transfers to the current population. They provide some current satisfaction, and maybe they buy some votes, but they do not contribute to economic growth. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. While it sometimes feels like a lifetime ago, it was just back in August of 2011 that Standard & Poor's downgraded the United States credit rating from AAA to AA+. Since then, concerns about U.S. federal debt have gotten less and less attention with each passing year, even as debt itself continued to rise. For context, I think the number the last time I checked was just north of $22 trillion, while the federal deficit was just shy of a trillion dollars. Of course, that depends on what you're measuring and how you measure it. But the bigger question might be, should we even care? After all, the U.S. seems to have shouldered high levels of debt for a long time, and aside from the credit downgrade, doesn't appear to have obviously suffered from it. Some proponents of a new idea called modern monetary theory, or MMT for short, even argue that as long as the Federal Reserve is around, U.S. deficit spending is largely irrelevant. Here to talk about what U.S. debt actually means for taxpayers, policymakers, and everyday Americans, we're joined by two perfect guests for the topic. First, Tom Grinnis joins us on the phone. Tom is a professor of economics emeritus at North Carolina State and author of a recent Mercatus paper on the topic entitled New Evidence on Debt as an Obstacle to U.S. Economic Growth. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Good to be here. Next, we have Kate Davidson here in the studio with us. Kate is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, covering the Federal Reserve and U.S. economy from the journal's Washington Bureau. And before that, she covered bank regulation and policy for Politico and American Banker. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Kate. Thanks for having me. I'll just ask this in the broadest way possible because it's a big topic with a lot of different facets. And maybe we can spend the rest of our time kind of drilling down here and there on details. Does the U.S. debt level even matter? Well, I mean, I think it does matter for sure. I think the question right now is how much does it matter and at what point does it matter? And I, I think even folks, you know, you mentioned MMT and um, we'll get in, get into that and explain what that means and what it's all about. But you know, I talked to some proponents of that theory and even they acknowledge you know, deficits do matter and debt does matter. But there seems to be new ideas or questions about how, um, which I'm sure Tom can can get into. But I think it's really it's a really interesting moment for uh, for fiscal policy and folks who who cover this and write about it because we have an election happening. We have Democrats, uh, Democratic candidates are, are putting forward these big, bold uh, policy proposals. They are arguing that the government has has room um, to run up more debt. And I think that a lot of those p- proposals, there are a certain you know g- group of voters that care a lot about that and um, and are really hot for some of those ideas. So underlying all of that is this important question, as you said, about how much it matters. Recent research I've done with colleagues Mehmet Johner of North Carolina State University and Michael Fan of Xiamen University in China indicates that that certainly matters for economic purposes. Uh, our main result is that uh, U.S. debt has reached a level where it's harming the economy, and specifically the form of the harm is a lower growth rate. Secondly, the magnitude of this reduction in growth is important. That it's it's the difference between two percent growth per year and three percent growth per year which in 2017 would have been a loss of $174 billion, so not a small amount. 
The other important point is that the timing of this damage is now. It's not in the indefinite future, as some people have told us for some time. We, you know, we've heard that this is a problem. This may be a problem for your grandchildren. It's more than grandchildren. It's with us now. And the other point is that the debt has already reached the point of 106% of GDP, the gross debt that is. Uh, it's the highest it's been in peacetime, and it's been growing almost continuously for 50 years. So, yeah, I think the evidence is that it is an important problem right now. Tom, your paper that you had mentioned kind of immediately conjured up my memories of what a lot of people know of as Reinhard Rogoff, which is a sort of now infamous paper that tried to look at the effects of different debt levels in various countries on economic growth or GDP growth. I think that that paper came under a lot of criticism for, for a number of methodological concerns that folks had with it that seemed to undercut that idea that if you have debt level at the certain percent, I think it was about 90% of, of a country's total economy, that you would cut significantly that country's economic growth. Maybe both of you can chime in on this. How did the Reinhardt Rogoff paper and then fallout from that kind of change the way we talk about why debt matters or at what level it matters? And then I don't know if either of you want to want to discuss this paper, Tom, that you've just done or other recent analysis that either shores up the original Reinhardt Rogoff proposal or or maybe continues to undercut that that claim. Yeah, I, I can comment. I think the Reinhardt Rogoff paper was useful. It also had some problems, and it was criticized especially for some calculation problems, which they got the, some numbers wrong, and it turns out they overstated the damage, although once you recalculate, there was still damage done by debt to to, uh, to various countries. And uh, a more specific criticism of them is they, they chose a, a, a debt level 90%, and it looks, uh, the scholars, it was kind of arbitrary. Why did you choose that number? And what other people have done since then, what we've done is to do a statistical estimation, which lets the, lets the data find the, the debt level that's crucial. Uh, but I think it was an important contribution. Uh, one, another important point they make is that persistence is important. So if a country gets to be above 90% for one year, that's not a problem. If it gets to be over 90% for five consecutive years, the data show that that was a problem. And recently, the United States has joined this kind of infamous group of long-term debtor countries that includes uh, Japan and Greece and, and Italy. And yeah, I would just add as a journalist from a journalist perspective, when I, I wasn't uh, covering fiscal policy when the paper first came out, but I can say, you know, in, in writing about some of these issues more recently, when we mentioned the paper or, you know, at one point in one story we quoted Ken Rogoff, I get a surprising amount of kind of angry reader responses saying, well, that was all wrong. And it right. kind of kind of dismissing it, saying, well, look, none of none of that happened. Nothing bad is happening, which obviously, as Tom said, you know, in his research demonstrated that that's not the case. But I think that some of the fallout sort of fueled this um, this backlash, if you will, from you know people who are saying that that this isn't really a problem. We really shouldn't worry about it. So I found that to be kind of interesting, this kind of dismissing a lot of their work um, just outright, when obviously it's a lot more nuanced than that. Kate, you had mentioned the sort of big, bold proposals we're hearing a lot of right now. We're in the middle uh, already of the 2020 election cycle. Uh, I think it probably started in 2018, if not before. As a result of being in an election cycle, we do hear a lot of program ideas. We hear a lot of proposals. Those typically come with price tags. And those price tags depending on the candidate, depending on the proposal, do not typically come with a, and here's how I'll pay for it, allowing for exceptions to that. How do you all think elections change the way we talk about debt? Is it a good development because we're suddenly interested again in fiscal policy and thinking about how we weigh the revenues we bring in versus the expenditures that go out? Or is it 
a negative for the conversation because suddenly people are just interested in how we spend money and less interested in in the effects of that. Or maybe it's a wash and somewhere in between. Well, I'm glad you offered that last option because I was <laughs> going to say it's kind of a cop out, but I think it's good and bad. Um, I know I was talking to one former senior policymaker, a budget official who uh, we were talking about modern monetary theory. And I've spoken to a number of economists who kind of cringe when I bring it up. And, and this person said, I actually think this conversation is really helpful to have because it does help us to zero in on the, the kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, the pros and cons, and um, whether we want to whether we want to accumulate this debt for you know X proposal or Y proposal, and so so his view was like it's fine. He he was happy to talk about it, whereas others I feel like are sick of talking about it. Maybe, but I do think that for voters, right? When you said you said some some candidates definitely offer um, some more detail on how they would how they would pay for things or whether they think we ought to pay for things, but uh, but others don't. And right, sometimes I think that does give the impression. That, that some of these plans don't have a real cost impact. And I think we should have honest, straightforward conversations about that. And maybe we, maybe we don't always, be in, you know, given the way that, as we know, political cycles, you know, how they develop and how they're covered. And there's oftentimes not a lot of room for dense policy conversations. So you're not suggesting that political conversations aren't always nuanced and honest, are you? <laughs> Surely you wouldn't do that. And Tom, did you have any thoughts on maybe – either the election or just kind of the way we talk about fiscal and debt policy, do you think we're in a better place than we were a few years ago? Or did people kind of forget about it and now we're in a worse spot? Surprisingly, neither party, uh, the leading candidates, seem to be very interested in debt. And so uh, traditionally, of course, Republicans uh, talk more about debt problems than Democrats did. But now Republicans led by Trump seem not to care. And the tax cut, uh, Republican tax cut increases debt. So uh, surprisingly, maybe a little bit surprisingly, neither side is particularly concerned uh, concerned about it. Now, on specific, more specific aspects of debt, like Social Security, there maybe is a little more awareness that you can't continue on the way we are indefinitely. But on debt in general, I, I think I think is not not much being said. If I try to think about some some candidates, not not presidential candidates, but uh, candidates who who come out for general debt reform, there is a Congressman Brady from from Texas has a has a plan that's similar to so-called Swiss debt break that would limit government spending to to tax revenue. But beyond that, I see uh, very little concern about a problem that, uh, from my point of view, seems to be getting bigger. I would I would just add to that. I think that those are great points that Tom made, and also I think that sometimes there's this assumption that voters don't really care that much about this issue, which might be why politicians don't raise it that much. Of course, you know they, they, when when we get a new report, a new Treasury monthly statement showing what the deficit is, sometimes. Folks will put out statements, politicians will put out statements, and they'll say how terrible it is. But for the most part, um, right, they're not talking about it all that much. But I think that that actually we've seen surveys um, suggesting that voters really do care about this. And again, uh, from my reporter's perspective, I get tons of feedback from readers anytime I write stories, even what I think are sort of, you know, a monthly, again, a monthly statement from Treasury, not that interesting, or it doesn't have a ton of new information. But it gets a lot of reader feedback and a lot of readers who check it out. And they're generally even Republicans. Republicans and Democrats are just sort of appalled by the situation and don't understand why Congress can't figure it out. Yeah, I have a small point on this, and I think that to some extent, maybe the, the people are worried about the debt. Maybe they've emphasized the wrong things, and maybe some people think they've been telling us the sky will fall, but the sky has not fallen. And part of this is it keeps some, some people keep saying interest rates will rise, interest rates will rise, and that will be an indication that people think the government is going to go bankrupt and will not be able to pay off their debts. 
And this has been repeated by lots of people. But what happens, in fact, is interest rates have not risen. The long-term U.S. government interest rate now, uh, 2.6%, well below its long-term average and below what it was in the, before the last recession. So I think they missed the main point, which is the danger, which has already happened, is the economic growth rate has, has diminished substantially. Not Interest rates have not risen. Tom, do you do you think, I'm just curious, do, do you think that the Fed in the years since the recession, the fact that you know monetary policy has been so accommodative, the Fed kept rates so low for so long, out of necessity perhaps, you know, that that, that has given cover um, to, you know, fiscal policymakers to, to run up the debt? I guess just how has that influenced the, the situation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yes, it's, 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 it's not only debt that influences interest rates. So, yes, the Fed policies of keeping interest rates low are a factor, and international uh, investment flows into the United States from, from Asia have probably influenced interest rates also. But it's hard to believe that those are the only factors. So I'm trying to think here, if you look at the 10-year, 10-year period ending, I think, last year, the debt doubled from 53% to 106%. And during that period, interest rates fell, fell to half. So it could be that Fed's part of that, I agree. It could be that international capital flows are part of that. But uh, these two variables uh, that a lot of people think ought to move together moved in opposite directions, and very substantially in opposite directions. So I think that's part of the, what's something that's misleading the public. A couple of things that, that both of you mentioned uh, just a moment ago. I know Social Security came up. And Kate, you actually had a piece out, I think yesterday uh, is when it went live, on the latest trustees report for Social Security. And that always tends to get people thinking about debt and deficit issues because it tends to be such a large driver. From your all's perspective, at least that's so that I said that's the the general perspective. From your all's viewpoint, if folks are interested in debt and they think it's an issue, where should they be looking? Right? Is it should they be looking to monetary policy? Should they be looking to Medicare Social Security? Is it discretionary spending? What are what are the real drivers of US debt? I can say that we definitely we know the answer to this, I think, unequivocally, that Medicare and Social Security are are really the big drivers. But those programs are very popular and they're very um, it's proven difficult to tackle some of the the costs there, I think, or the costs and revenue issues, obviously. You know, you mentioned this trustees report that came out yesterday, and, and, it, and it said that they're projecting that by 2020, the costs of Social Security will exceed the income. And at that point, we'll have to, they'll have to start drawing down um, you know, the, the Social Security trust fund, and that that would actually run out by 2035. At, at that point, you know, if Congress doesn't do anything, there will be an automatic benefit cut. It's hard to imagine that they that they don't, that they let that happen, that they don't do something before then. But I think this kind of big, perhaps bipartisan effort to uh, to solve this issue seems really difficult, especially in a political environment that's just become so um, kind of partisan and, uh, and now heading into an election year. Um, you know, as Tom said, this is a problem right now. But I think year to year, it's very difficult to find a time, it seems, for lawmakers to, to find a time and place to tackle this. Also, I mean, President Trump uh, had made this promise not to touch those programs. So I think that makes it difficult right now for Republicans. And then you have Democrats saying, as Tom pointed out, hey, we just had this big Republican tax cut that drove up deficits. Why should we be the ones to fix that? We have things we want to do. So there's there's just very tricky political um, dynamics that are getting in the way of, uh, of dealing with that. 
and Social Security is important, and Social Security is difficult. I think one of the major problems causing this uh, the current debt increase is the, the way the government spends its money and the big change. So when you look at the federal government's budget, years ago, 30% of it was on uh, entitlements. Now, something like 70% of it is on entitlements. So there's been a major switch away from things like infrastructure and basic science that would promote economic growth, a movement away from that toward entitlements. And the three big ones in terms of dollars are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Big switch in that direction. Why is that happening? Well, the the political bias toward the present, especially toward aging and satisfying uh, uh, aging, and and also, I think, uh, some some political disagreements, of course. Um, But that switch has has had an adverse effect on economic growth because infrastructure and basic science promote economic growth. Those are kind of government investments, and that's being abandoned. And these others are transfers to the current population. They provide some current satisfaction, and maybe they buy some votes, but they do not contribute to economic growth. So I think that switch is very important. Uh, however, it's not so easy uh, to do something about Social Security. I would just say one thing, however, and I don't want to take up too much time. It's not impossible to think back to the 1980s when there actually was some, some, some change, some, some reform in Social Security in terms of raising the, uh, the age of, 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 uh, of eligibility. Uh, so something has been done before. It can be done in the future, but it's certainly not easy. Well, yeah, not to belabor this, but yeah, just one one more thing, too, because you did mention discretionary spending, Chad. I think that there is this perception that the government just spends too much, um, which, which that that may that may be so. But I think people do focus on the or, or maybe they maybe they don't realize that the discretionary piece of that um, has actually gotten smaller, particularly non-defense discretionary. It's been trimmed and trimmed and trimmed, especially since the you know, since the financial crisis or I guess, you know, the deficit increased. And then there were all of these deficit reduction efforts. And so I think even now you see, uh, for example, when the president put out his budget earlier this year, I think that in that that proposed you know, very um, fairly, fairly steep cuts to some of those programs. There are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who I think felt that that just wasn't really realistic, um, that it's that it's now becoming harder to um, trim from that part of the budget, um, you know, apart from Social Security and Medicare. If you're not going to touch those, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find places to trim on the other side. Discretionary share has gotten smaller and smaller. There's not much you can you could do with that anymore. If I could just say one tiny thing about, about Social Security, when it was reformed a little bit way back in the 80s, people were very careful to phase it in over a long period so that people who were affected were, were not affected for many years and they had plenty of time to, to change their saving and investment and retirement plans. That's actually a great segue. So I'm, gl- I'm glad you chimed in with that because one of the things we always try to do is look at how the average American might might respond to these kinds of conversations. You're talking about making sure any changes you do are sort of phased in, that you allow people to sort of plan. Thinking back, you guys have mentioned economic growth a couple of times. And I want to put that same, okay, why should people care about this? Or, or how do we communicate this issue to, to people who aren't in a university or sitting in Washington? The way we've talked about debt in the past, and Tom, you even mentioned this, has been we're going to be the next Greece, right? We're going to have a, a sovereign debt crisis. Interest rates are going to skyrocket and no one's going to want to buy our debt. And there's going to be this, this catastrophic thing, as, as again, you mentioned, that sort of didn't happen. How do you all think it's beneficial to talk about debt 
in light of the fact that these changes are often sort of hidden, right? I mean, you know, the, a person who just goes to work every day might think, well, 2% growth, 3% growth, that's only a percentage point, right? That doesn't seem like, like a big deal. Are, are we really talking about that significant a cost if we're not concerned about the sort of big catastrophic Greece-like situation? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's difficult to get that idea across. Uh, standard living is important. Certainly politicians, when they run for office, they claim they're going to improve the economy, they're going to improve wages. So they, uh, they claim that uh, they're running on, on a platform of which the standard living is important. The other big point I would say would be look around the world at all this migration, people moving, moving, moving. Which way are they moving? They're almost all moving away from low income per capita countries to higher income per capita countries. If you didn't know anything about why people were moving, you didn't even know much about geography, you just tell, say, tell me where the income is higher and I'll predict people are going to move in that direction. So lots of people think that the standard of living is important. I would say, too, on the question of kind of is it a crisis, someone, an economist, explained it this way to me, and maybe Tom's heard this a million times, but I found it, when I heard it recently, I found it very helpful that um, when you're thinking about debt, it's not like um, the house is on fire. It's like the house has a leaky roof, and over time, it leaks and it leaks, and you put a bucket, and um, you know maybe there's kind of that gross brown spot you get <laughs> in your ceiling, and but over a long period of time, the house eventually becomes uninhabitable because uh, there's just this damage. And you know, maybe maybe that's not really a perfect analogy, but sure. um, but I, I thought it would kind of, it made sense to me when I heard it. Yeah. And an analogy seldom are, but that one sounds pretty <laughs> solid to me. We're coming to the conclusion of the conversation, but we're far from resolving it. As you all talk to, whether it's the public or policymakers, whoever your audience might be, if there's one thing that you could sort of tell them that would help communicate the work that you do on fiscal issues, on debt, that you think people maybe just don't understand or they haven't heard, what do you think is the most important thing that folks could, could take away from a conversation like this? Well, I think in general, in, general in, in addition to the idea that the standard of living is dropping, I think the important point, I would say, is that it's dropping now, not in the future. So the people who've talked about this and worried about this debt issue always tell us, oh, you know, your grandchildren may suffer and your grandchildren may not get Social Security. And I think the point from our own research is that that suffering, that reduction has already happened and it's happening every year now. And every year that something is not done in terms of reform, all of us will suffer, not just grandchildren and children. I guess I would I would maybe emphasize this great point that Tom made about this kind of big shift that's happened in the budget that um, we've gone from making these big investments in, let's just call it the future, to kind of investments in the past is maybe a way to think about it. And we're we're devoting a larger share to Social Security, Medicare, instead of infrastructure, education, science, research. You know, we have this this trade war going on right now with China, where one of these big um, pieces of it is is over research and intellectual property, and um, and just kind of concerns about that. And yet, you know, the budget proposals from the administration would would scale back that research funding for that research. As I mean, that that's kind of one tiny example. But I do I do just think that people, as I said earlier, just have this idea we're spending way too much money. We have to cut these programs, but it, it's not so much the the amount, but kind of what we're spending on and what's influencing that and it's going to continue influencing that those decisions going forward is the the level of debt i think so we have to have honest conversations about how we want that money should be spent and to to do that i think you do have to kind of have kind of have this grasp of um of what's driving driving those numbers 
it's all the polarization. Uh, at least there are a few things that people agree on, and I think the the importance of infrastructure is something almost everybody agrees on, but oddly, not, nothing is done about it. Well, I'm going to seize on your moment of optimism, Tom, uh, because if I can ever conclude a conversation on fiscal policy with an optimistic note, I'm going to take it. Uh, and I'm going to land the plane here and bring us to a close. Uh, I, I do want to give folks an opportunity to keep up with your work. So if there's a, a place online, a Twitter handle or, or a work you've recently done, this is a great time to kind of share it with our audience. So I'll, I'll maybe start with you, Kate. Uh, any, any place online you'd like to direct our audience after the show? I find if we're trying to think about growth and fiscal policy, um, the Hutchins Center has a nice fiscal policy impact measure. Um, so when we write stories about how these policies affect growth, people are sometimes skeptical that, you know, it's not the government, it's businesses, which is totally fair. But you can go and this will actually show you how spending decisions do affect the economy. So that's a little bit different than debt. But I just um, I find it to be helpful in when I'm writing about this. That's great. And Tom, any resources of your own or others that you'd like to point folks to? You, you could just go to the Mercatus Center uh, online uh, source for publications and look under my name, and I'll have a number on, on the subject of debt and another series on uh, international trade, especially the infamous Jones Act. Sounds good. And as always, listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese with any questions, comments, or episode ideas, or email me at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu. Stick around for what's on tap coming up in just a minute. But until then, thanks to our guests for their time today. And always appreciate you listeners. We'll see you next time. Thanks for sticking around and welcome to What's on Tap. As always, I'm Chad Reese, and I'm here with co-host Kate Delanoy. Today we are trying, from just up the road in Baltimore, Union Craft's Duck Pin Pale Ale, kind of their flagship pale ale, drinking this in honor of our producer, Dallas, who is a Baltimore native. So a little shout out to our neighbors to the north. Kate, what's going on in Mercatus this week? Salim Firth, one of our urbanity scholars, has a new paper out looking at housing regulations in Texas. And so Salim Firth and his co-author Nolan Gray look at four of the biggest suburbs and suburban areas in Texas, so Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and then the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And what they find is that the lot size requirements, the minimum lot size requirements that they have there through regulation actually means that the housing market is still somewhat distorted and it doesn't show the true housing density or the variety of customers that could be potentially interested in housing if those lot size requirements were changed. So one of the reason everything's bigger in Texas, you're saying, is that sometimes they're legally required to be bigger in Texas. (laughs) It might be the case. So it's an interesting paper, and that'll be out uh, this Wednesday, May 1st. So encourage everyone to check that out. Sounds great. And we will have a piece on the bridge about that uh, from Salim and Nolan. Awesome. Speaking of the bridge, there was a great debate last week. Brian Knight, head of our financial regulation program here, led a conversation with Aaron Klein of Brookings, Jim Angel of Georgetown, and George Selgin from Cato. And they were talking about the real-time payment system and to what extent, if any, the Federal Reserve should be involved in that. Yeah. So as I've mentioned on the podcast before, I think I'm a financial regulatory nerd. And so this was really exciting for me. But I say that uh, with the caveat that it should be exciting for everybody, actually, uh, because real-time payment system would affect a lot of people, whether they know it or not. 
some people experience the problems we have with the current system in the form of, oh, I was supposed to get paid today, but the bank isn't going to process that payment for another two days, but I have a bill due in the meantime. And so that lag in between when different financial transactions actually get recorded costs a lot of people money uh, all the time. So it sounds like the question is not, should we go to a real-time payment system? Everyone's on board with that. But there's some disagreement on how involved the Federal Reserve should be. And I think we had a really good diverse array of folks with viewpoints all across the spectrum. Yeah, and I love the format of it because you see people's positions and then they also responded to each other. So you can see all of that play out on the bridge. Yeah, it worked really well. Everybody was uh, was a trooper for that one. It turned out to be a lot of fun. Speaking of a lot of fun, I'm a fan of our Duck Pen Pale Ale. What are your thoughts? This is pretty – this is probably a little too pale ale for me. I'm worried uh, about that. It's I, – I think I finally settled into my groove of knowing that I like New England – IPAs and this is a little hoppier than I think I would I would prefer. But that said, I still I mean it is very bright and I think if you like pale ales, I can definitely understand why this would be a go-to pick. Yeah, it's funny the Union Craft guys have mentioned that they they resisted for a long time the like New England IPA style because they really like the sort of classic, you know, yeoman's beer uh, in the in the classic Northwest style pale ale. Um, so I don't think they would be upset to hear you say that. That is very true to this style. I'm a fan. I think it's like a four out of five for me, but I, I really like pale ales. I mean, I'm going to go with probably a two and a half, just not my style, oh. but it's okay. I, like always, I appreciate you bringing the beer. Well, I am getting four out of five star hand signals from producer Dallas, so I'm going to be okay since we got you outnumbered on this. <laughs> That's fair enough. Cheers. 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 